Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 28. And the last time we saw interesting uh, debates with the Lord. And, you know, kind of make a parallel to your own life as a Christian. When you're trying to share your faith, when you know something about the Word of God, and you're trying to tell the unsaved world about what it means to be saved and to know God, and it's so exciting. But it's so cool when we can emulate what Jesus went through. You know, Jesus had no problem. He's a few few days out from the crucifixion and the religious leaders are hammering him mercilessly. Uh, several of them against him. You don't see the disciples jumping in. But the Lord, of course, is holding his own. He's the Lagos. He's the Word of God. And his desire is for everybody to know the truth, to know salvation through the Messiah so they could be saved. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal, eternal life. And that was Christ's whole mission. You know, that substitutionary death on the cross, you know, to die and then be buried and to rise again in fulfillment of Scripture, ascend into heaven, give the Holy Spirit and, and build this organization, so to speak, that we know of as the church to give the message of salvation to the rest of the dying world. It's just the way that God set it up. So we see this going on. We see these debates. And today is really the last, one of the last major um, discussions that the Lord is going to be having with his, his opponents before going to the cross and he gives them a few more chances at introspection to look within themselves and to see do you really know who God is do you really love God do you really believe in what God says in his word because if so then you have to kind of change the way you're doing thing and one scribe actually does well as we'll see that he does have a heart change uh, from this point on probably to the re through the rest of the month in chapter 13 we're going to look at eschatology which is so cool which is actually what brought me into the kingdom, the, the curiosity about revelation and what's going to happen after this and years and the Antichrist and all this kind of stuff and how does it fit in with what's going on now. So eschatology, we're going to break it up because it is going to be a lot to swallow, try to make some personal applications, but we'll see that Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, hey, looks, the temple is going to be destroyed. And he says this before it happens. Not one stone will be left upon another. And then he goes into future and different kingdoms. And eventually, Jesus actually uh, overshoots 2014 where we are. So we're, we're going to see what he's going to speak about the past, our present, and then he's going to shoot into our um, somewhat near future, which we don't know because we're not supposed to set dates for when the Lord's going to return. So this is going to be exciting as well. And I hope you'll join us, even if you're not here, that you would get it free on the website and check out what the Lord says. And it really does encourage us and it strengthens us to why we believe what we believe. This isn't a blind faith. This is a thinking person's faith because God gave us a brain and he wants us to use it. So let's jump in, starting with verse 28. It says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, who? He's speaking about who's reasoning together. The religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and this debate with Jesus. So he hears this going on, perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first or the foremost commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all, 
the, of the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Remember that in the Old Testament. At this point in time, as he's speaking, this stuff was still going on. The burnt offerings and the sacrifices, right? For sins and, and, and peace and fellowship and different things to go with God. But we're going to check that out. In verse 34, it says, So when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him. Now, in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees hear, it's more specific, the Pharisees and their group hears that Jesus silences the Sadducees. So they figure they're going to take a shot at him. Let's see what we can do. Let's throw some hard questions at him and see how he answers it. You know what's really sad? The world does this a lot. You know, hey, what does the Bible say about that? And it's really a setup, because as you start to answer it truthfully, then they start whacking you, and they try to throw you off to, to so-called try to prove that God doesn't exist, which is ridiculous, because we can't answer a question properly. But this is what the world does. We're all into this debating and debating, and, and it's, like, it's kind of like cutthroat the way it happens. Um, and you might have been set up at some point. Uh, and, and, and say, gee, the next time I want to answer this question better, know my word better. That's the best way to do it. But in the midst of all this, there's a scribe. Now, this guy is part of the Pharisee movement, if you know your history. He also, the scribes were often lawyers. So these weren't dumb guys. You know, they were paying attention. They were listening. They had a lot of the law memorized, probably a lot better than most Christians today have it memorized. But his heart was pierced. And he perceives that He's seeing something different about this rabbi that everybody would talk bad about. And, and they see that he, he perceives there's a spiritual component to Jesus. And, and he maybe heard him for the first time. And this guy's blown away by the Lord. And his heart is actually softened. And that will happen sometimes. Don't be discouraged when you're maybe in a peer group or a social group and you're seemingly being set up and you're trying to just give them scripture, give them God's word, Right? And somebody in the group is listening. Somebody in the group, is, it's, it's going in. And maybe they're afraid to say it in front of their peers, but you're making a difference. I've had this with cults. When they come to your door and espouse all kinds of weird stuff, they usually have an older person and a younger protege that's, for the most part, quiet. But they're listening. They're listening. It's going in somewhere. So I just want to encourage you with that. But the question is, the first or the protos was actually where in English we get our, our, our prefix proto, as in prototype. So the first, but don't be deceived by that. The word actually means what is the foremost or most important commandment in God's word? What's the most important? And what does Jesus do? He takes them back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, starting with uh, verse 4, where the Lord is preparing the children of Israel to go into the promised land, and he's making sure they understand their success is really contingent upon their love for God and their relationship with God. So I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 4. Here, now this word in Hebrew is Shema or Shoma. 
That means here with understanding. It's not just here. We hear a lot of stuff in our lives, don't we? You know, our eyelids close, but we don't have ear lids. So we take in a lot of stuff, even when we're sleeping. A lot of it comes in and goes out. The brain just can't take in all that stuff and, and remember it all and retain it. But hear, O Israel, hear and retain it. Have an understanding. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word one is echad in the Hebrew versus yochid. Yochid means a solitary one. Echad means a united one. So right back all the way in the Old Testament, God was saying to his people, he's revealing himself, I'm a united one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've talked to my Jewish friends and uh, those that know Hebrew, I'm like, oh yeah, it's spot on. It's, it's absolutely true. It's the elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about. But verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and, sh and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And Jewish people today have these mezuzahs. You know, they're, they're kind of on an angle. And they, if you open them up, some of them are just decorative. Others, actually, you can open it up. And it has this, this prayer in here, this Shema. Hear, O Israel. So what Jesus is saying is, that's important. Because we're to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, this is visceral in a spiritual sense. This comes from the inside. Loving God is not a surface thing. I mean, really, how many times a day or a week or a month or a year, or maybe in our lifetime, do we ever think, do I really love God? Is there evidence in my life that I love God? Or am I meeting up the relationship, um, a good relationship as it speaks in the Bible? Do I love God? And I think what's sad is, Brothers and sisters, I think it was different 200 years ago here in this country. You know, all the history I read in the revivals. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the love of many would grow cold. And I find myself, you know, I'm an upbeat person. Yes, my wife. As soon as I open my eyes, I get out of bed. I'm ready to go. You know, let's go. Let's go out into the world. I got a list of things to do. I'm a busy man. I'm just excited about life. God gave me another day. If I can say that the one thing that gets me down occasionally, and we talk about this, and I talk about it with my pastors, is, is the, the lack of interest that the world has for God. You talk to people about the love of God. You tell them, you know, why, why struggle with your problems alone? Wouldn't you want somebody to be with, your, with you all the time? Someone who will never leave you nor forsake you? Someone who will give you good counsel and help you through the bad times? Carry you through times even when he allows you to go through it? And it's like, what else do you have to say? That's the attitude of the world. And, and it, it, it saddens me, because every pastor's heart is to, is to see people get saved. I want everybody in this room to be saved, if you're not. You don't even have to go to our church. You can find a church that you like better down the street. Just get saved. Just have a relationship with your Creator. We're all prodigals before we're born again. Amen? All right. But it's sad that even some in the church, they keep God at an arm's distance. I don't want to get too excited because they know the implications of that. They know that that will mean a change in their lives and their lifestyles, and they don't want to do that. And that's sad. But let's dig deeper. The word soul, I'm going to play with some Greek words and you know, throw it out there, and there's Hebraic roots that we could jump into too if we'd like to. But if we dig deeper, the word soul is suke, where we get the word psyche from. 
And the word mind is dianoia, which literally means to cut through the intellect, to cut through the intellect. And the word cardia is where we get the word cardiology and stuff like that. It's heart, but this is more in a figurative sense, not in a four-chamber muscle that sits behind the sternum. Now, taking this all together, this is the idea that these four words uh, paint for our feelings towards God. Let's look at this and, and say, is this me? That my thoughts are towards God, my feelings are towards God, my will, my vitality, my being, my deep thought, my reasoning, my understanding. I want to understand him more. I want to read more about him. Reading the Bible is not a chore or somebody makes me do it, but it's something I enjoy doing because I want to get to know my creator. My forcefulness, my ability, and with power, does that describe us? And this is a good thing. You know, sometimes when we raise our children and they, they're, get, they're just so used to, you know, we, we, we clothe them, we feed them, we do all these things. And when they become teenagers and adults, we want them to love us for who we are, not just for what we can do. So there's nothing wrong with brothers and sisters listening to this message and then going home in our quiet time and saying, do I really love God? Is there any evidence in my life that I love God? There are other things that can get in the way of loving God. Self-love. We're in a society that's all about self and self-aggrandizement. Me, my followings, my friends, my... Um, and this is what, what happens. In 2 Timothy, I want to jump to 2 Timothy because I think this is applicable today. 2 Timothy 3. The Apostle Paul is speaking to his young protege, Timothy. And he says this in verse 1, But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now you tell me if you don't think our society is this, as I read this. Men and women will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, posters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong. These are some powerful words, aren't they? Haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's a problem in America. We're hedonistic. It's all about pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. The American dream is up way above holiness, way above God. You see it in every ad and television. You can't get away from it. It's brainwashing our church. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. We won't even defriend somebody on Facebook when they're vile. Forget about turning away from somebody who's like this. Form of godliness. There's a lot of godliness. There's a lot of stuff you see on TV and Christian TV. There's a form of godliness, but there's no power to it. It's a show. It's a sham. It's, hip it's hypocritical. Here's a test, a fourfold test to see what we do love. What do we elevate as God in our lives? And this is the fourfold test. Number one, what does our money go to? What does our time go to? To me, more, to me, time is more precious than money. I have a very busy life. Time to me, if God could you know, stretch the day and I get four more hours, that would be super. <laughs> but, you know, it hasn't happened yet. So the best I can get is daylight savings time. <laughs> so money, time, what do we put our time into? What do we sacrifice? A lot of people are sacrificing for their physical bodies. You know, guys with the sports and their kids with the sports. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. What about for God? Our thought life. What do we think about the majority of the day? Right? What is at forefront of our mind? It makes us smile and, and gives us good feelings. 
Is it God? Or is it something else? I see this too often, that those that put very little or nothing into their relationship with God and call themselves Christians, when things happen like trials and tribulations, the first person they blame is God. They put nothing into the relationship. And back in the day, we used to call somebody like that a user. Okay, They take your friendship, they take what you can give, and they give nothing in return. And then when there's a trial and things go wrong, they're not spiritually prepared and they get mad at God. And they have unreasonable expectations on those that represent God. You see, the Greeks and the Romans had their pantheon of gods, and we laugh. Uh, my son laughs when I talk about Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite and Hermes. But we have our gods too in America, don't we? Do I really have to name them? I don't think so. All I have to do is go back to that fourfold test. It's God or it's something else that we've put in his place. And if we're not loving God, I'll tell you this, we're definitely not loving people. They go together. Right? How can we love people if we can't even love God? There are some that never venture out of their circle of loved ones to love a stranger. The love of many will grow cold. Even worse, Jesus said, Hey, Christians, <laughs> my followers, when you go out into the world, they're going to recognize you. You know how? That you love each other. If we're in a church or we're in the aggregate church where Christians are always fighting with each other, they're always at each other's throats. Well, I don't like this one. I don't like the way he talks. I don't like the way she dresses. Does the, does, is the world going to want to become a Christian? Are they going to want to join the church? No. But Jesus said that would be the litmus test that we love when they see us loving each other. Then they're going to know, oh, those must be Christians because that was the test. Verse 33. It says, and to love him, love God with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. It is more. Now this is described saying this to Jesus. It is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. These people lived in this system with the burnt offerings for atonement for sins and all this, the covering and all that kind of stuff. And he's saying, this is more important. Now we can see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Right? I mean, if, we, if we're, our hearts are not inclined to love God, to obey God, and to love others, then all the sacrifices back then and today mean nothing. A lot of folks are deceived. They're doing rituals. They're memorizing prayers. They're, they're putting money in. They're doing all kinds of stuff, and they think that God is happy with that, but he's not. He wants us to love him, and he wants us to love each other. Can I tell you something? That's more difficult, especially loving the unlovable. You know, we all know somebody maybe in our biological family that gets under our skin. When the holidays come, this is what you're thinking about. <laughs> what if Uncle George is going to come over and start whatever? You know, even, even in the church too, people leave the church. Well, I didn't like that one person and I couldn't stand looking at them, so I left the church. You know how many times I hear that? It's, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. This is what we do. God's like, you know what? Keep your sacrifices. That's my paraphrase. How about loving? How about coming out of yourself? You know? Matthew twenty two forty in Matthew's gospel, Jesus adds, On these two commandments, loving God and loving others, hang all the law and the prophets. What do these things point to? Relationship. Relationship. Not surface relationships. There was a pastor out in California, um, Don McClure. He said, I have he said, I have 4,000 Facebook friends and I only know two of them. <laughs> so, 
You know, I mean, this is the age we live in. It's the age of self. It's the age of, you know, pretend. Illusion is what it is. Do we have real relationships? Do we have real friends that will call us up one day or take us out for coffee and, and say, you know what, there's something that's really disturbing me about you and, and it's really, it's not concurrent with what you're preaching in the scripture. And then for you actually not to run out of the place and leave them with the bill, but to actually sit there and listen and to take it to heart. Do we have friends like that? I know I do. Not fun when it happens either because you know, we're the biggest... Um, propagandists of our own fan clubs because of the age of self. But this scribe broke rank with his peers in commending the Lord. I've said this before. We can often have the courage to stand with a friend who's doing righteous and everybody else leaves that friend. But we stand with them. But many don't have the courage to stand against our friends and our loved ones when they're doing evil, even though they have a following hey, for this point in time, I think this is just wrong. I can't support it. You know? uh, on the church Facebook wall, you can jump onto our group at any time, just put a, a request in there. Every once in a while, we'll put up things and articles. And um, I do um, uh, consider this series. It's just a thing to get you to think. It's not that often. But the one I put on recently was no one to stand your ground and no one to give ground. And the wise person knows the difference between the two. And there's a lot more to it, but it's, it was pretty good. Jesus told the man, the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Does that surprise you? He said something, he agreed, he was moving towards Jesus, but Jesus said to him, you're not far. You're not there, but you're not far. I love, I love Jesus' frankness. You know, we, we all say how much we love Jesus, but I think if he just came, came back in the flesh and just started doing a circuit and, and got behind the pulpits, I think a lot of people wouldn't invite him back. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He just was that frank. But he did it out of love. He didn't have time to mince words. He had, he had work to do. Whether it was the scribe or people today, mental assent, mere assent, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that's not enough. We have to put our trust of our soul, of our afterlife, of everything into his care, into his hands. We have to believe and trust that we can't get to heaven on our own, that it's because of his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins and our trust and belief in that, that is what saves us. Now, did the scribe get saved? Maybe. I mean, he was moving in the right direction. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But brothers and sisters, we have to move out of the realm of just talking about stuff to doing. The Bible's clear all over Scripture. There's a young lady who is going to a Christian university. I'm not going to say her name because I don't want her to get a bad grade. But she gave me permission to use this. <laughs> and she said, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like devoid of the spirit sometimes. She goes, I take, I'm in theology class and I don't like it. So you don't like it. You go to Bible college, you come, you hear theology from the pulpit. She goes, it's different there. She goes, I did a paper on sin and salvation. And, you know, I, I went through the biblical model of, of you, know, the whole, you know, the whole gamut and what it means and how it all works together. And the professor had a problem with it. He goes, I don't like this, and I don't agree with it, but because you backed it up with so much scripture, I'm going to give you a good grade. Then they talked about revelation. Revelation. And, and they were, you know, everybody's jawboning. Well, it's, you know, it's very nefarious. I mean, it's very nebulous. It's, it's a little murky. It's cloudy. What did Jesus mean here in the symbolism? 
So one can't really understand Revelation. I taught Revelation, by the way, the whole, and I'm not anyone who has a much higher intelligence than anybody else. The thing about Revelation is in the name itself, the word is apocalypsis. That word means, and we get apocalypse, and we think of apocalypse now, the movie, and all kinds of crazy stuff, but if you really think about that Greek word, what it means is unveiling, revealing. So here Jesus is, John gets it, John spread it to the churches. We get it 2,000 years later. Every church knows, even unbelievers know about Revelation. And we know that it's the unveiling, it's the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's the culmination of all things, human history, spiritual things, the afterlife forever and ever and ever and ever. And you got eggheads who claim to be Christians teaching in Christian universities. And this is happening everywhere, folks. You think that you, you send your kids to a Christian college and everything's going to be fine? You've got to be living it at home as well. Don't trust somebody else with your kid's mind and their spiritual walk. Amen? Revelation is the unveiling. It's for us to understand. It isn't for us to be not understanding it and afraid to read it. It's all there. Do we want to be closer to the kingdom of God or do we want to roll with the modern-day Pharisees and Sadducees? That's the question. And when we want to be closer to the kingdom of God, and when we have a relationship with God, it's going to be a little painful because we're going to see things in ourselves that have to change that God wants to work on. Not fun, but it's the better way to go. Verse 35. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Remember King David? We're, we're in Kings. I'm, you know, I'm teaching 2 Samuel, 1 uh, Kings. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Or more specifically, in the Old Testament, this comes from Psalm 110.1, he says, Yahweh, the covenant name for God, said to Adonai, my Lord, my master. He's talking about two different people here. Check this out. Verse 37, Therefore David calls him, meaning the Christ, Lord how is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. They were refreshed by the Lord's teachings. It just was so real. Jesus uses an outside of time, I guess you could say a mind bender, a mind teaser, to get the religious leaders stimulated on what they really believed on the Messiah, who he was, and his essence. Right? We know that he, he, Christ was outside of time. He came and took the form of a man. He's fully God and fully man. Speaking about himself, here's the enigma, here's the puzzle. You had King David, and then he had children, and they had children, and his great, 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 about 10 more greats, grandson was Jesus come in the flesh. Here's the puzzle, here's the, the, the rub. Respect always goes up, it doesn't go down in that patriarchal society. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just saying what it was. So what, what's going on here is that David is referring to his offspring as Adonai in Hebrew or Kurios in the Greek. That word means master, lord, supreme authority, and in some contexts, God. So he said, Yahweh, God, said to my God or my Lord, my master. David is saying this. Here's the problem. This is a major problem because this was accepted as Messianic Scripture. How could David say that? And, and Jesus is saying, think about who the Messiah is, that David can say this by the Holy Spirit. Even better than that, those who have a problem with the Trinity, you see the Father here, you see the Son, 
and it's done by the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all in the same one verse. Amen? Now, this was written, this psalm, approximately 1,000 B.C. And what it really was doing, it was the Father pre-resurrection, but looking past it in prophecy, okay, saying to the Son, when you die on the cross, and you're humiliated for the sins, not yours, but for the people, ours included, you will be resurrected, you will ascend to heaven, and you will sit at my right hand in a place of honor. And... I will deal with the enemies, the enemies of Christ, from the Antichrist all the way down, for those who are rebellious against the way of salvation. This is our, a future occurrence, okay? From 2014, this hasn't happened yet. Right? It, it, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Some see this in the kingdom age. Some see this completely fulfilled in the book of Revelation. What I'm trying to say here is, what's being said here as well is the age of grace is running its course. The age of grace is running its course. Today we're still in the age of grace. You can come here and you could have done horrific things in your past and maybe you can't forgive yourself. But God has already paid for it on the cross. This is the age of grace. You and I get good things that we don't deserve. Christ took the burden of our sin on that cross. So whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever you're thinking of when I said that, whatever's troubling you, forget about it. Give it to the Lord. He's already paid for it. Now trust in Him for that sacrifice and believe that that sin is washed away, never to be brought up by God ever again. Okay? That's comforting. Anyway, going back to this, basically Jesus was saying to them, really think about who the Messiah is because you guys are getting it all wrong. He wasn't just the man. Now, similar to the religious leaders in the Lord's day, if we get... Who Jesus is wrong, we get salvation wrong. And again, you can turn on TV, you can listen to articles, and you can see a form of godliness, but denying its power. There's no power. You can get this gentle Jesus, you can get this weak Jesus, you can get this Jesus who did a great thing on the cross, but you've got to finish the job. You can have a Jesus that just has no power. He can't walk you through the storms in life. You can get a Jesus that's so weak that you tell him what to do and you demand blessings and wealth and health and you're going to get it because he's obligated to give it to you. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. There's a form of godliness in our country, brothers and sisters, and it's, they're denying his power. Verse 38. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Now this is the short list. Short list. If you could put up Matthew 23, if we go to Matthew 23, there's a whole chapter devoted. I'm going to read it fast. If you, if you really want to understand some of it, you can go back to the teaching on the website. But Jesus, as I start to read this, you tell me if you can think of any religion today. This has been going on for 2,000 years, folks. And Jesus said, he's trying to warn us about this. Jesus, speaking to the multitudes with, his, with the religious leaders who he's speaking about there, talk about having courage. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But they don't do according to their works. For they say, and they do not do. They bind heavy burdens. Think about religion, religious duties. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, 
but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad, enlarge the borders of their garments. Think about religious leaders who wear all the fancy vestments, and you say, oh, that's a religious leader. That doesn't mean anything. They're clothing. When we go before God, we're going to be naked. i got news for you. <laughs> no jewelry, no iPhones, thank God. So I'm sorry to give you the visual. Let's continue. <laughs> Six, they love the best seats at the feast, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Check this one out. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be abased. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, remember, religious leaders, hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You preclude them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses, for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte when he is one. You make him twice the much the son of hell as yourselves. You wonder why they wanted to put him on that cross. 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies the gold. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can. Could you imagine being there when this was going on? Whoa. <laughs> Sit back. Devouring widows' homes. This is the oldest trick in the book with a dishonest rabbi, minister, priest, pastor. They, and I'm sure you've seen it, they nuzzle up to the elderly because, especially the sickly, and they do certain things and they manipulate so they want to make sure that when the person passes they get a little something in the will. Some even ask, believe it or not. And also long prayers. Anything where the person is in the spotlight and furthers their brand. Verse 41. It says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes the quadrants. So he called his disciples to him and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, this amount of money in that period of time made up roughly a dollar. And Jesus is saying, look how much she put in. The disciples are like, what are you talking about? I heard two, ding, ding, you know. But all oh, those guys, look at, oh, that guy just, just dumped a, a knapsack full of stuff into the... There was these uh, trumpet-shaped receptacles around the area of the temple. There was a few of them. And people would come in and they would make a show of what they were giving. So it was obvious. However, this, this widow, as humble as she, as she was, probably just moved up to the thing, put her two things in, and then she moved on. Here's the principle of proportion is better than portion. Right? The wealthy put in out of their abundance. She put in out of her poverty. I've actually known, seen it, and heard of um, tithe envelopes from churches that say, no, uh, no, n nothing other than paper money, nothing less than a dollar. 
If your kids want to come here and put a penny in and that makes them feel like they're doing something, we'll count the pennies. We'll give them to the teller, all the pennies. Um, they might not be happy, but we're happy, you know what I'm saying? So I think that's humiliating. You know, there are those that can't afford much and this is all they could give. This is what Jesus is saying. We can take every single thing that he said 2,000 years ago, fast forward it, and speak about what's going on today. Proportion. Here's another one. Those that, you know, well, we're going to remodel starting in January. We're going to go on vacation. We're going to set all this stuff up. Sometime in September, we'll give God a $20 bill. If you're poor, that's a lot of money. If you're wealthy, you know, think about this scripture. Do we give God out of our abundance? Do we make sure we feed our flesh first and then, and then we think about God? Again, 2014. The second thing we see is that Jesus was exposing the motives. How much versus how we give. Again, proportion versus portion. How much versus how we give. Do we make a show of it? Natural inclination is to be praised and noticed. But that's not the Lord's way of doing things. See, this message is not just for first century Jerusalem. We need to apply it to our lives as well. Where are we with loving God? Where are we with the greatest commandment? Loving God and then loving others. We like his house. We like the church, maybe for reasons that don't have anything to do with God. We love his blessings and answered prayer for sure. But do we love him? That's an honest question that all of us could be asking. Do you know what it makes us if we just want what God can give and we don't want him? And there's plenty of successful ministries that are preaching this garbage. What does it make us if we just want what God can give, but we don't want him? There's a worldly term. It's called a gold digger. A gold digger. Think about that. If we gave to our kids, our spouses, our friends, the minimal time, energy, and sacrifice that we get put into the, to the Lord, would they stay with us? Would they stay with us? I want to read one more scripture and then we'll close. It's awesome. Romans 13, 8 through 13. Because you know what? It's all about love and relationship. You could have taken everything I said and just forgetting about it, forgotten about it. It's all about love and relationship with God first and then with others made in his image. Now, guess what? Some might be saying, gee, another relationship. I just don't have time for it in my life. This is God we're speaking about. This is the one who made you. This is the one who loves you. This is the one who's dying to give you all of his blessing as the king's kid. This is God. This isn't like another person that we met off the street. Verse 8, it says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, and all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Imagine that, the law. Don't steal, there's a penalty. Don't murder, there's a penalty. You know what that all sums up as? Love your neighbor. Would we steal from somebody we love? Would we try to kill them? Would we try to lie about them and gossip about them? No, we wouldn't. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. 
Church, we need to awake out of sleep. There are a lot of things happening in our countries and we're clueless. We're in our own bubbles, sometimes our own church bubbles. There's people hurting everywhere. Pastor Vinny, if you didn't get his message from Wednesday, it was, it was spot on. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. This dark world, the Lord is going to come and take His church out of it. We don't want to be doing what other people are doing in the spiritual darkness. It needs to be cast off because we're going to be embarrassed. You know, we're supposed to be that, that good and wise servant who's, who's taking care of the Lord's affairs because He's going to come at a time that we don't expect it. And we're going to talk about this next Sunday. And let us put on the armor of Kevlar. No, no, no. It says the armor of light. Light. That's what's going to be our armor. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Amen? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.